From the southeastern corner of western North Carolina, this is Polklore. I'm your host, James Hernishan. Back in October, just before Halloween, I found myself in the pews of the Tryon Presbyterian Church, listening to some of the most challenging music I've heard in the last 20 years. The musician was Drew Bansoff, a Gen Zer whom Reverend Alan Pertill had managed to hire earlier this year as his church's musical director, right after Drew graduated from the North Carolina School of the Arts with a degree in composition. The instrument was the organ, which was no surprise given that the venue was a church. The concert was billed as a Pipe Screams Legacy program with a Halloween theme under the title of Frankenstop's One, It's Alive. The first piece was Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which is probably the most famous piece of organ music ever written. Stick around and I'll play an excerpt from Drew's performance in case you're not up on your organ repertoire. So again, no surprise. But it didn't take long for the playlist to stray into less familiar territory. Drew even warned us that we were about to head into difficult listening territory, which isn't something you hear from your typical church organist. But then, Drew isn't a cartoon stereotype of a church organist. He's a multi-instrumentalist who has already conducted his alma mater symphony orchestra, the American Modern Orchestra, and the Mostly Modern Orchestra. Here's a sample of one of the more challenging pieces at the show, Apparition de l'Église Eternelle by Olivier Messiaen. And it got even stranger after that. Strange, but rewarding. At least it was for me, because if there's one thing I can't stand in music, it's the lack of creativity. And the Frankenstops concert was the opposite of boring and predictable. By the time the echoes of the final chords of the concert's closing piece, the premiere of a new composition by our host, had faded from the rafters of the church, I knew I wanted to talk to Drew about his approach to music. Fortunately, he agreed, and we talked a few weeks later at the church. Drew Bansoff, welcome to Folklore. Yes, thank you for having me. I am fascinated by what you are bringing to the musical culture in this county. Uh, but before we get to the details of that, explain uh, where you come from, what did you do to become the composer that you are, and how you got to where you are now. Sure, yes. So I am actually not too far away at all. I am originally from Black Mountain, North Carolina, so just about an hour away from Tryon, which is great. Um, it's my hometown. I still live there now, which is great. I, I guess growing up, I was always sort of surrounded by um, music. I mean, even I have very, very, very faint memories of being about uh, two or three years old, listening to Mozart and Bach and all these just amazing composers and being so inspired by them. And um at the time, I didn't realize that the music was having such a profound effect on me as a person. But as I got older and started studying music, um, I began studying with piano at the age of seven. That was the first instrument I learned. And then from there, started to kind of 
gain a little bit of hands-on experience with a little bit of this music. And then as I moved up into um, like middle school and high school, I joined band and choir and played in orchestras and had just about about as much as you, uh, I took on projects and things and as, as, as much musical exposure I could get, I actively sought to do that. And so I would play in every group I had the chance to play in and just absorb all this music and all this information. And it was also around this time, really in high school or so, that I decided, I said, well, I'm absorbing all this information. I'm playing all these pieces. Why don't I try to write my own pieces? And so that's where I started, sort of started kind of going into my first um, little dabbles into um, composition. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I decided that I wanted to study composition. And so I um, applied to and was accepted into the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, which is in Winston-Salem. And so there I had four years of lots of composing, performing, and conducting almost nonstop. And it was really a surreal experience. And so from there, just kind of going forward now that I'm out of college and I'm now... Um, a prof working professional musician now working in a church. I, I take all of those experiences with me too. And so, um, and I've, they kind of reflect on the things that I do as um, all of these different sides of my musical growth. Well, it must've been a bit interesting to be drawn to uh, the classical realm when you were younger. I mean, most kids in their teens, it's hard to resist popular music or what passes for popular music these days. And it's a lot more fragmented than it was when, when I, I was your age. But was there any popular music that sort of, that you were drawn to? I mean, yeah, I mean, d definitely to a degree. I mean, I think the thing for me was, um, so, and I, I've had other people who are non-musical people kind of explain this to me in a lot of the ways. I mean, a lot of the times I think when most people hear a song, they, um, the music sort of enhances the lyrics of the songs to kind of tell them, not always, but just often to tell the musical story of kind of how these things are happening. And for me, I've always been drawn to um, more of the musical elements of things. Like I'm always fascinated with the different colors of sounds, the different types of sounds that can be created in um, really in any piece of music. And so I, I wonder if classical music sort of had that impact on myself, just kind of growing up, hearing the different sounds and different combinations, both pleasing and displeasing. So, and to kind of tell a story really. And so, but to go back to your original question of um, popular influence, I, I probably picked up a lot of that just growing up. I have two younger sisters who love Taylor Swift and all these other, I mean, musicians and things. And so, I mean, I, I'm always listening, even to, even to this day, I'll listen to hear all these um, more popular things. And they, they have definitely been absorbed into my music. I also, um, I'm a big rock fan. So I love rock bands and a lot of um, music, really like progressive rock bands from the um, 19, really the seventies and the eighties. And, um, Things like that that have so like, talking about yes and Emerson Lake. Oh Omar. yes, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah, especially those two are huge influences. Rush. Yep. All of those groups. So yeah. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the decision to work at a church as a musical director and an organist. I mean, because when you look at your your bio, which you handed out at, at the Frankenstops concert. And uh, I looked up a little bit of, there's some write-ups up on you at the uh, the North Carolina School of the Arts. You are described as a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, so do you have a, a chosen instrument? Uh, is, is the organ just what happens to be in a church, or is the organ really your thing? 
Well, so I like to think that I have about six things that I really have that are all kind of equal. So I really do kind of bounce back and forth between about five or six different instruments. So I play piano is the first instrument that I learned, but I'm the kind of person I've discovered that once I learn an instrument, I try to stick with it and want to be able to play it at a professional level. So I've picked up piano. I'm also a brass player. So I play French horn, trombone, tuba. Um, I've had a pretty strong background in percussion too. So I have a um, significant amount of experience in that as well. And then also um, organ, of course. Organ came when I was in high school. I um, and really, before that, growing up in the church, just growing up in the Presbyterian Church, I was um, I was constantly hearing the organ on Sunday mornings and being immersed with that um, experience. And then one day when I was, I don't know, maybe six or seven or something, I was decided to sneak into the church at night one day and just mess around on the organ. And that kind of changed my life for the better from there. So then even to... Um, up until I was hired and started actually performing organ for churches and things. So I would, in college, I was doing that. But up until that point, I was always just kind of sneaking in, um, practicing the organ. Eventually in high school, I started taking organ lessons to kind of fine tune a lot of these things. But um, yeah, so the organ definitely has a special place for me as a musician. Um, with a lot of everything I do, I've written several pieces for organ as well, and it, it, it's it's always there. I use the organ a lot in a lot of my orchestral compositions and things, and so it's um, it's a core part of me. But there are also these other elements like piano, brass, percussion, and I sing too. So um, very versatile with a lot of, I like to play with a lot of different musical toys, as I like to call them. So. Well, it sounds like you just want everything except for maybe the strings. Yes, the strings and woodwinds are the two I cannot do, okay. so... Um, <laughs> and trumpet trumpet's too high for me but okay so uh this is your first gig after graduating right from, right so you're still you know very early in, in your career but you've done a few interesting things you've composed pieces for um ensembles that my father up in canada he may not have heard your your uh compositions but he's heard these ensembles play so mm -hmm. how do you at your age this at the phase in your career you're at, how do you get compositions in front of musical ensembles? I, so a lot of that has to do with really being, and this is the thing I've kind of learned about a lot of the way the music world works. Basically, it's all about being in the right place at the right time when the right circumstances unfold. So a lot of the things and the way that I've been able to kind of have a little bit of attention with some of my work and my personal things is being in college helps where you have I have mentors who are professional composers and know have connections to people all over the world really who um work with groups the music community as uh, and especially in the classical music world is not big it's very 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 interconnected and small and I have friends from um and colleagues and acquaintances that I know that are all over the world um that in the United States Europe some from Asia some from um various corners of the world that are um, crazy. So um, so even just a little bit of um, exposure to some of these people and just simple, simple conversations and passing discussions and having a sort of determination to really sort of commit to whatever project has been or, or opportunity has been placed in front of you and go the full distance with it to see what happens. That, that usually opens a lot of doors and you, you learn how to sort of go through as many doors as you possibly can that are available to you. And then that's just kind of how I've built um, the the short but very substantial um, brief career I've had as a composer and conductor and um, 
perf- musical performer. I'm very curious, though, at your decision to come back to basically where you grew up. I mean, it's a bit of a drive out to Black Mountain, but mm-hmm. still, um, instead of uh, moving to someplace, you know, bigger city where there are it's going to there's going to be more of your peers, more of the people that you're just talking about that you need to work around. You're kind of cloistered here in, in Tryon at a, a medium-sized church. Mm-hmm. Um, was that simply a, a fact of you like the idea of, of working close to your roots? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's there to some extent. I really think, and I really do think about it this way, I, I have this sort of feeling as sort of the way that even the way that I got this job and the way that I ended up here was not by choice. It was more so sort of the... Um, just various chance events and happenings allowed for me to discover um, this job. And then as I discovered the job and started doing some research and reading, discovering the community, I I was drawn to it. I mean, and and so it it just sort of became this place that I said, this is, this feels like the right place to be right now in my um, career. And so I I don't know that I didn't choose to have these feelings. I didn't necessarily actively seek out um, this place, but it's more so this place found me and I embraced it and it was, it was a great decision. So that's what I would say about that. Uh, I would think you might've been a bit uh, attracted by the organ in this church. Oh yeah. I mean, that is a remarkable (laughs) instrument. Yes, it is. It is a fantastic instrument. Yes, indeed. It's quite, um, it, it has the potential to be an absolute monster of an instrument. Like it is a very loud organ and, um, which is great for certain occasions. So that means usually in a normal church service, I'm not nearly using the full power of the instrument in there, but, um, in recitals and performances, I, every so often I'll be able to kind of push that envelope a little bit to get it, get some really loud, powerful sounds out there but yes it is, it is an amazing instrument and i'm very privileged and honored to be able to play it every week so it's a bit like a synthesizer really oh absolutely yeah uh, maybe more than a bit i mean it does have samples for some of the mm-hmm. the, the ranges of instruments right? right yes so it's interesting so the organ as the organ is the organ really is kind of the world's first synthesizer i mean it really is it uses similar but it's it's, it's all natural though of course so instead of using um electronic um or um electric pulse impulses to create that use oscillators to create sound waves um you have pipes and different shapes of pipes sizes of pipes that um and materials that the pipes are made out of that um alter the sound and so absolutely in kind of working with the organ and and doing all that you i had there are ways that you can um you, you learn how to mix. It's it's sort of like sound mixing, but I, I really sort of think of it as you have your own orchestra at your fingertips in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, there are probably millions of different combinations of um, sounds you can produce on that organ and on several organs like it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an amazing experience for sure. Well, it makes an amazing sound. And when uh, I was at the Frankenstein's concert, you were uh, doing a lot with your feet as well. And I know people probably understand that, that mm-hmm. the feet are involved in this too. But how do you how do you coordinate four limbs? I mean, that's <laughs> years of practice. I mean, that's just, I mean, yeah, even to this day, I still, it, it, it's always, it's still a challenge to play the organ. It always will be a challenge, but it's not, you, you, you sort of learn to lose the fear of the challenge. And that sort of allows you to reach new sort of, um, <laughs> 
um, physical abilities that you didn't realize that you had. So you start to just, so uh, it's, it's always, I mean, I, I, all the music teachers everywhere always say practice, practice, practice. I mean, but really and truly, I mean, that, that is true to a lot of a degree. I mean, you just have to do it a lot. And then the, the more you do it, the, um, the, the, the more, the more, com at least from my experience, the more confidence I gained in being able to, um, do all of that, um, crazy four limb coordination. So. But how much how much crazy stuff do you get to slip into a Sunday service? <laughs> I can usually get away with a pretty adventurous postlude. I um and I've and what I've done through um, being here with my time at the church is I've sort of gradually just introduced little by little, sort of as building blocks, um, little bits of sort of adventurous things happening in the sound, and that's that kind of gave me an idea of okay, what is this audience? used to hearing and would they be able to um tolerate a little bit of ambition and so far they've only been extremely receptive of it and they seem to love it so I, if i can put a good little um postlude in there that's a little it's a little showy or does things that are a little bit outside the box usually it's always well received which is really wonderful and so i, I keep pushing that bar forward and higher as they they and they seem to be loving it here so i'm, I'm very pleased with that so. well i i am interested in the reaction you're getting um have you done more concerts uh, other than the frankenstop one not here i've okay. not done any concerts here but um throughout um over the years i've had i've played in several churches and been able to just kind of do things really mostly in western north carolina but um I've been able to sort of gauge different audience perspectives from seeing different, and a lot of this has to do with both just location, the demographics of the audience and all these other things that just sort of kind of tie into what musical experiences they are used to having. But um, what I've discovered in sort of doing a lot of this and just from kind of being the type of composer that I am and also with just working with various groups, both as a musician, as a conductor, as all sorts of things, is that you can sort of gauge these ideas and... Um, really exposure is sort of a critical component to allowing for, um, so that a lot of these people may actually be more familiar with these more adventurous sounds than they realize, but it's just how you present it, how you present it to them. The first time really is sort of, and then, then you kind of add building block progressions from there, totally depending on where you are and what you're doing. And I've been fortunate to have several experiences where I've been able to sort of push the boundary a little bit. And I have different degrees that I can use. Like some, some people, some audiences are more receptive to, to some more extreme stuff. And that's where I'm really able to, um, do that. A lot of that is in like music school or in academic environments where you really start to see a lot of that adventurous um, music. And every so often I'll allow that to bleed into a worship service or into a um, another performance of some form, um, just depending on what it is. And usually you just sort of, you pick up on these dynamics and you sort of just kind of see what your audience um, can, uh, if you have this luxury, you don't always have the luxury to be able to do this, but you can sort of gauge how your audience is receptive to certain sounds and kind of go from there. So it's really, it's really interesting. But being an organist in a church or the musical director, you're not just mm -hmm. responsible for, for playing organ right. interludes, right? Yeah. Um, you get to know the audience. Mm -hmm. So right. it's not like there's a different audience every week. It's the same people more or less. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, is it kind of like leading them on a little path? Somewhat, yeah, or, or giving them something um, 
you, you, I try to bring, I mean, I always try to bring my best self to every performance that I can. So it's sort of like giving them a little piece of yourself every week that maybe they didn't get the last week or something like that. So you sort of keep building this cumulative um, thing. And so that it keeps them, it keeps them a little on edge, but it also keeps them, I think, I hope it keeps them excited a little bit to, um, so that way they see they're like, they're, they never know quite what they're going to get next, but um, I promise to make it worth their while. So it's... <laughs> It's a fascinating experience, but yes, having, having an audience that, you know, um, it's really cool to be able to kind of share those parts of yourself to them, um, in, in different ways every week. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool experience. Uh, how big is a repertoire you can draw on for, uh, for religious services? It's a lot. It really is a lot bigger than I think a lot of people realize. And I mean, and I think a lot of that may have to do with how attitudes towards music are changing as we emerge into the 21st century, really. And as we've sort of been actually been in the 21st century a little bit now, um, uh, people, uh, the Internet is helpful because the Internet exposes you to um, millions and millions of songs and things that can be used or and you sort of start to sort of start to see this absorption of um trends and um, styles of music that have not been in church historically, but that are now, um, because of our globalized world and the internet and everything, everything just sort of bleeds together. So there's all the um, historical repertoire that's used in church music that's still being used, but it's almost like it's growing rapidly and rapidly just because of all of these different um, world cultures and experiences or the, the lines are becoming very gray as to where it all kind of bleeds together. So if I wanted to pull a song, I'm just thinking of a hypothetical example here. If I wanted to take a song that was by a rock band or something and use it in a worship service, it depends on the audience and it depends on the way that it's um, used. But I'm, I would never say nothing is impossible. I think there are really interesting ways and people are doing things all over that are really innovative with learning how to sort of bleed the lines to um, really, I mean, in really worship services, a, a big component of them is about conveying a certain message or um, covering a certain topic every week about what to, um, you, with, with whatever religious connotations are being um, discussed. And so you sort of learn how to match the musical side of that, but also um, kind of covered through an enormous array of things that, that are um, kind of expanding outward as where lines of genres and more historically secular things are now being sort of merged with um, sacred things. And this is actually not a new concept. There are, um, I, I could name countless hymns and things that began as secular songs that then just someone attributed um, spiritual texts to them and they became hymns. But the origins were not, were a lot of them were far from um, sacred music. So it's really interesting to see, to see all these lines kind of bleed together and then to really see it unfold. It, it, it's a thrilling time to be alive, to be a musician and a composer with our globalized world and with the internet. So. Well, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people, I'm certainly myself, understand that a lot of popular music has its origins in in sacred music. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Bach was inspired uh, by his faith, mm -hmm. uh, uh, reportedly. And in, in the United States, you know, we have the gospel tradition, right, um, which sort of bled into R and B and and soul and and then eventually blues and and rock. Uh, but you're saying it goes in the other direction too. Absolutely, absolutely, it does. 
if you're coming from, um, you see all these, yeah, so actually it's funny you bring up Bach. I, I'm actually thinking of a couple examples on some, some of his pieces where he was inspired by um, the local kind of folk traditions of his Germanic culture. Like I, I think one of, I'm, I, someone would have to actually fact check me on this, but I'm thinking the, um, the last variation of his Goldberg variations, which is variation number 30, he uses a bunch of um, basically um, subjects or melodies that are used in there that are inspired by local German songs that are about cabbage and um, like it's basically I think it's a song about I don't want to eat my cabbage so I'm gonna do it or whatever <laughs> the actual topic is but it's totally like a secular or sort of um, just kind of like German traditional like German folk um, thing and so he he Bach was a master and, and so was Mozart and, and and all of these composers were masters of sneaking in popular ideas and things into their pieces and then which then get absorbed into um, and viewed through the lens of the church as being these beautiful sacred things but they may, they may not be so it's inter or it may not have been originally so it's fascinating to see it all unfold um, Bach is to put it bluntly one of the more accessible uh composers for the organ uh and for for sacred music in general and uh you this podcast begins with a very very short uh recording that i had two of my friends do of a little piece of his first cello concerto oh nice and uh, i get a, a cellist plays the simple line and then i got a banjo to kind of parallel it uh, oh, cool. and the reason i chose that was because i like bach i i think mm -hmm. that's a great that his cello suites are are fantastic, but I but the banjo is very North Carolina. Oh right? yes, you know, mm -hmm. and and so I'm trying to merge the two, and I'm wondering, do you draw on in the folk traditions of this part of the world? Oh, absolutely. I have written several pieces um, that are inspired by Appalachian folk music, bluegrass, and uh, other things. Um, one of the biggest ones that I'm thinking of is I wrote a string quartet, um, started it last fall of 2022 and then finished it um, early, early, early this year, like January. Um, it was basically it's basically a parody of um, a barn dance, like an Appalachian barn dance. But basically it's the piece is called Barn. But it um, it. <laughs> So you have a bunch, you have two violins, a viola, and a cellist. And what I did with them was I, I put passages where I had the, it, 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 they're they're more comical passages, of course, where this happens. But I had them um, using like banjo picks to pluck their instruments and do these things. I even had there are a couple places where um, the cellist has the opportunity, if they choose to, to hold their cello like a banjo, so they pull the cello up and rotate it and just sillily kind of strum it and do these other things. But um, and there are these heavily notated um kind of like bluegrass influenced improvised solos with drone strings and the um in the violins and there's lots of shouting and stomping and clapping it was a whole um thing it, it's sort of it a sort of kind of like contemporary classical music mixes with bluegrass and appalachian folk music and it was a it's still probably one of my favorite pieces that i've written and it's so it's such a surreal um thing but there's that absolutely i've written i've written a few pieces that have for banjo um or for banjo in large ensembles i've written um i've written a piece for wind band that has two banjo parts that are it's not it's not a concerto but they're they have pretty um important obligato parts that are important to the um portraying the piece and so that i you see those i've, I've used banjos and guitars and all sorts of things and lots of lots of compositions and so do you have any of that recorded Yes, actually, there is a recording of um, a barn barn out there. 
Well, let's take a listen to uh, a few seconds of Barn. Sure. Yep. That was different. <laughs> Which brings me to uh, the, the, the real reason I wanted to talk to you, and that's because at the concert in October, you basically warned the audience that they were going to have a little bit of a challenging time. You started off with Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which I'll just play a little bit now so people know what we're talking about. Sure. y'all know that that piece i mean that is one of the the it is one of the most famous pieces of organ music ever made yes but then you introduced some stuff that was written in the early 20th century mm -hmm. which is notorious for being uh a little bit challenging yes just to put it politely laurie anderson used to talk about difficult music mm -hmm. and you basically told the audience this is in a church in tryon that you're going to play difficult music and what what are you hoping to accomplish? Well, so this is interesting. So, I mean, I, I remember specifically saying this about the piece by um, Olivier Messiaen, which is um, the, the piece is titled in French, um, Apparition of the Eternal Church is the name of the um, piece. And basically, so Messiaen, of course, you look at the world in the during the early 20th century, um, really up until about... 1945 and even beyond i mean there's there are world wars that are happening in the 20th century so you that's where you see a lot of kind of um difficult art and it's not just music there are pieces of visual art and just like all things that are sort of stemmed from around the time of expressionism and all these just very violent kind of things that are out there that are um kind of visceral messy in though kind of going back to this piece um Messian lived a lot of his life. Um, he was a very religious. He was a very, very religious man. But he spent a good bit of time in a concentration camp during um, World War II, um, and so and so several pieces were inspired by that. But this particular piece, I was, I don't know the exact story of why I was compelled to um, program it on Frankenstops. But basically, it what it, I was. It was a piece that I saw an opportunity to perform the piece. It's not a piece that's performed often because it's very, it is very loud, very difficult to listen to, and there, it's a very slow, pounding piece. And this is because Messian is trying to illustrate what he basically terms um, as a as sort of a vision that he has of looking into heaven um, through the work of all of existence unfolding. The eternal church is being built stone by stone after the world has been dragged through all of the evils and absences of good and love that are that have been missing. And so it's sort of the piece 
attempts to sort of represent the emergence from that into this sort of eternal church triumphant. And it's a real, it's a really powerful piece when you hear it. And when you hear it in a space that's such as a huge cathedral or something, it's a, it's a, it's a very spiritual and profound experience, but, um, doing it in doing it in a smaller church like this does not do it justice, but it's still with that organ, I was able to sort of get close to portraying that effect. But, um, it is, it is a difficult piece to listen to. And that's because, um, uh, probably a reaction of Messian's experiences and for being so adamant about sort of presenting the message of his life experiences through his music. And, um, I think learning from the composer in this situation is vital, both to sort of sustaining, um, all music, not just classical music, but all music kind of moving forward. And for also, um, being honest about, um, our experiences and, um, through the history of our world and for allowing that to never, ever, ever perish and pass on. And so I think music can be one of the most powerful tools to do that. And so basically through programming this program and through, um, sort of rec seeing, I mean, you look at our world today and there, there are some, there are some pretty, um, unfortunate things that are happening. And so, I mean, I think sometimes that, um, music can be, music can speak where words cannot often is I've found to be the case. And so I saw an opportunity, um, with doing this program that yes, it was advertised as a Halloween influenced program, but, um, Halloween, of course, is the sort of precursor to All Saints Sunday, where we sort of remember all of those who have passed on in the in the Christian faith. And so um, I saw this piece really is sort of, I, I see it as an All Saints piece. And yes, it is a very difficult All Saints piece and a very important piece to perform when that opportunity arises. And I saw an opportunity and I took it. And so that's sort of how that came to be. You've almost answered the question I was about to ask, and, and that's is, I understand Messian was a product of his time, and that piece of music is a mm -hmm. product of that particular time in history, yes. a very dark period in, mm -hmm. in, in human history. Uh, but uh, what I was going to ask is, why choose it to p play it in October of 2023? And you, you kind of hinted at it. I mean, there are things going on right now. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's a war in the Middle East. Yes. It, was that on your mind? Was or whether it, was it just our political polarization? Or, I mean, what what was it that they'd said to you? I want to take this piece from ninety years ago and present it in a, in a modern context. So I this is interesting, and this sort of kind of ties back into this notion of music speaks where words cannot. And I think it's sort of um, the way I would really describe it, and 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 I'm I'm saying this from just totally the way I experienced it was the piece sort of chose to allow itself to be played. And what I mean by that is that I wasn't necessarily thinking of any specific things that were happening in our world, but it just sort of add as a, a reaction to sort of this part of me. For me personally, it really sort of is this um, spiritual experience where it's sort of, I really do see music as this sort of reaction of both humankind and also of um, I being a religious person, I see it as often as God working through um, the world in a lot of unexpected ways, and it can be an, an incredibly powerful tool um, to express these things. And so I sort of had this um, 
I, I could not tell you exactly why it ended up on this program, but I'll, all I know is that it, it, it chose, the music sort of chose to appear and to present itself in this way. And, and, and it just sort of, maybe perhaps as a reminder of, uh, maybe as a reminder of another era, maybe as a reminder of our purpose today to um, continue moving forward through the world um, for the betterment of the world and for to try to and use music, of course, as one of the most powerful tools to um, try to come up with creative solutions to um, sort of deal with our problems and deal with our um, disagreements and to hopefully tear down as many barriers as we possibly can moving into um, the coming decades and centuries ahead and even years, months and weeks going in the other direction. So it's, it, it, it's, there are, there are, I am wholly convinced there are things happening here that are um, beyond this world and that are just, that are not, not exactly tangible, if that makes sense. Well, it sounds like what you're doing is a, a logical corollary to what your boss does, right? Alan mm -hmm. um, writes sermons and plans services. Now, do you work with him? I do, yes. So mm -hmm. and you say you kind of coordinate the thematic nature of your music with the thematic yes. nature of, of his program. Absolutely, yes. Because mm -hmm. to be honest, I never thought about that before. You know, I mean, growing up in a church, I just heard the same sort of hymns and music, mm -hmm. you know, over and over again, sure. and it just never occurred to me that there would be any kind of creativity involved in putting together a musical musical program for a service. Sure, mm -hmm. and and that's interesting because not, I mean, there are some some churches are more, um, pro, I guess, proactive or adamant about this than others, and so um, I'm really lucky to have a pastor like Alan here at the church who um, he's usually very very open to. Um, allowing lots of creative thoughts and ideas to happen to become a part of the service. And so he may have an idea for what he wants to um, preach about or to um, or to, to, to write the liturgy or do any anything like that. But uh, and then usually I try to match. Um, he gives me a lot of freedom to choose the music and the services. Not every pastor does that. All, several pastors will pick their own hymns that they want to match with whatever their um, text is. And the music director just kind of follows along. Alan is not always like that, which is really, which I think is really wonderful. I mean, he, he values my opinions too. And he will add, and we, we usually just try to come up with what the, the best, the best possible results that we can for um, any service. And I, I certainly want to make sure that I'm in line with what he has for his vision. And then I, but he, I, I'm also really grateful and he's, he's very generous with allowing um, that to sort of go the other direction as well, where he will ask my musical advice on things. And then we come up with a service and, um, trying to make it the best that we can every week. And so it, it's always a pleasure to do that. And so reminds me of the task of a soundtrack composer for a film. Oh, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorite soundtracks? Uh, well, I will say one of the composers that has just always been an influence and will always be an influence is John Williams. I mean, easily. I, I, I take a lot of traits. We, we have a lot of influences, too, as um, composers, but... Um, I've, if there's anyone whose music is pro has probably been ingrained in my mind more than any other composer, it's him. And that's probably in part just to all being exposed to all of his um, wonderful film scores that, that we all know and love so well, like E.T., Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, all of the, all of those films that have sort of absorbed, <laughs> been, been absorbed into our culture. And that 
John John Williams is remarkable because he is sort of in a position where he is able to sort of act as an ambassador of um, centuries of classical music to an, a global audience that is not necessarily as familiar with that music. And so as a film composer, I mean, I, I'm hoping I, it's been interesting to see that it has revived through his work and through his film scores, a lot of interest in classical music and in music that sounds kind of like what he did. So you start with John Williams, then you start looking back into the music of the people that he was influenced by, like Tchaikovsky and all of these great romantic composers, um, Wagner, Beethoven, um, Igor Stravinsky, that's a, he's a big one, uh, Gustav Holst, all of these, all of these um, remarkable composers. And uh, I was going to actually mention Holst because John Williams for Star Wars drew on uh, Holstein themes to, mm -hmm. to for, for his, you know, for Luke's theme and Darth Vader's theme and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, do you refer to Holst in your music? Oh, absolutely. I have. So Holst, ironically enough, his most famous piece, The Planets, of course, is, is, is an orchestral piece. But Holst actually has a pretty strong background as one of the... Um, probably highest highest composers for wind bands so he has written suites for military bands and things that are um that i, I, I have sort of my background as a brass player i've had the privilege of playing in a lot of wind bands and things and so i mean you play a lot of marches and stuff but he was the one to sort of or gustav holst was one of the ones to really sort of help to invent the symphonic concert band or symphonic wind ensemble and so um he writes all of these pieces that act sort of like they're sort of like Sym like symphonic compositions, but they're instead of for a string orchestra or a symphony orchestra, it's for a wind band. And so there's his first suite, his second suite, and all of these have um, wonderful movements and different styles. Um, the last movement of his second suite is actually sort of influenced by the the Greensleeves hymn or folk tune. So you that, that's another thing back to earlier in the discussion where you sort of see all these co local composers. Holst was English, so he absorbed all of these English tunes and carols that have ended up in hymnals and become all these things, but that, that was his influence. And so you see how um, all of this, all of the musical worlds are connected and they're constantly influencing each other. And um, as I, I am absolutely influenced by a lot of these same influences that a lot of these composers have and are um, continually evolving. And even the ones that have um, passed on like Holst, I mean, their, their legacy will live on forever. As long as humankind lives, it will. So what about a uh, still living composer, Hans Zimmer? Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. He, um, very different approach to, um, film composition than John Williams, for sure. Hans Zimmer is definitely much more electronic based with the way that he kind of deals with his um, sound and his sound worlds and things. He has a very unique um, and distinctive style that people love. And um, he and his background actually is interesting, too. I mean, from what I've heard, I think he had several backgrounds in um, in a lot of like bands and things like rock bands and things. Actually, I think I think he's in the music video for Video Killed the Radio Star. I think he's in the background there. So <laughs> that, that would have been earlier in his career. But yes, but so that you'd be like, oh, there's film composer Hans Zimmer in there. But um, so he said the Buggles, of course, but that's a, um, it's a fascinating adventure. But yes, absolutely. All of his wonderful scores like The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, um, or some others. Uh, the Interstellar uh, soundtrack has a lot of organ work, absolutely. which is just oh, yes. phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So that that's an interesting one. I know they did the um, 
it, I think it was recorded in a in a church in England um, that was uh, that had a wonderful organ. I think, and you, I think you can go if you have the DVD or you have access to the. I think you can actually go watch sort of the mu the making of the music. But yeah, they 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 had this guy in there that recorded all of these cues for the film. They're just of this beautiful, it's really stunning organ music, and then. Um, Hans Zimmer goes back later and adds all of these that he, he's a master of using technology and music. And so he adds all of these um, effects and synth synthesizer things that are happening underneath as well, which is really, really cool. But um, so uh, sort of a different kind of on the other end of the spectrum from John Williams, for sure, but absolutely both film giants. So, yes, I, I didn't deliberately uh, set out to talk about uh, composers uh, for <laughs> films, uh, it, but listening to you talk about your work in the church, it just seemed to me like you were doing what film scoring is all about. <laughs> oh, sure. Do you have any aspirations to uh, to do film scores? So I, this is interesting. So I, there was a point in time when I definitely, it definitely was up there on um, the list of things that I would like to do. And I mean, even to this day, if someone, if some director for even some small film or documentary or something approached me to, um, write the music for a film, I would most likely say yes. I mean, it's definitely not. Um, my career hasn't taken that turn yet, and I have no idea if it ever will, but I am certainly not against doing that. Um, it, it Films are so interesting because usually uh, the process of film composition, um, the composer sacrifices a little bit of freedom to write whatever the director has the vision for. Um, the film that they're creating and so what and so that there's a lot of collaboration which is great um i've been i have scored little film cues before and as part of just um being in a music school but um what probably one of my bigger collaborations though it's sort of working with someone has been a musical that's a totally different um approach to composing because so you have the writer who is or the creator of the show whichever it is or both it could be different people um writes your script and then they have songs they need written and so then you go to the composer and then you all you find what works you write a lot of music you discard a lot of music and or you or we say something we may like it one day and then you toss it and um do something completely different the next day and so um that 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 process is um it's very interesting, but I, I, that, that's probably one of the closer experiences I've had to, um, film composition, but it's still so different because film has all of these nuances and things where you're trying to sync, um, specific amounts of time of musical selections that are, they're called cues that match each scene to, um, a motion picture. And that can usually end up being an hour or two of music. So per film, so it's a, it, it is a, it is an entire industry in and of itself, film composition, but definitely not something I'm opposed to doing at all. So, well, maybe one day we'll get to hear something uh, that, <laughs> that you do. But in the meantime, what uh, are you? Have you got any other concerts planned in, in the same vein as Frankenstein? So we may see something appear. I'm starting to kind of pull together my plans for the um, spring. What I do know. Um, and this is what I've been sort of fortunate to do um, is sort of planning worship services ahead is uh, we have several um, very, very, very um, high powered musical services that are coming up. So I know the Christmas Eve morning service, December 24th, we're going to have several um, musicians who are going to be joining us to play. We'll basically have a little small orchestra up on stage for the service doing some um, special music, some pieces that I've written. So um 
which are which should be very cool. And then um, some just we'll have some all of that support for hymns and things. And then I have some I, I don't know that I'm going to reveal them yet, but I have some pretty ambitious plans for Easter with I what what I envision to be a pretty large brass ensemble playing some majestic Easter fanfares moving forward into um, April and beyond. But I also am definitely on the lookout here soon to begin to program some concerts and things. I would love to do a um, choral program at some point with this church choir here. I think it would be wonderful to put on a concert of um, choral music. And so that that is that is a project that I foresee coming hopefully sooner rather than later. So we will see. Stay tuned, as I would say. All right. Well, that's a good place to wrap up. All right. So, thanks so much for spending the time. Um, I look forward to whatever you can put together in the months ahead. No, perfect. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was a real treat. I love that interview. And I really do mean what I said about looking forward to attending more performances by Drew Bansoff. I hope those of you willing to stretch your musical horizons can find a way to do the same. I also invite you to draw my attention to any other musicians in Polk County who are doing something different. Email me at jameshh at polklore.com. Thanks for listening. I know it isn't always easy.